This is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. I was just counting the other day. I said, what? So 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Coming up on the end of seven years. In June, starting the eighth year. Crazy. Yeah, honestly, if you want, if you... If you're ever bored or you're driving someplace, go through the archives of All Marine Radio. There's some awesome stuff in there. If you've never listened to this series on discipline, fantastic. If you've never listened to the Battle Studies series, fantastic stuff. And I don't say that because... I (laughs) produced it and all the rest of that. Um, No, it's the guests. And then you let them t- tell their story, and you kind of get out of the way for that. And But, yeah, coming up on uh, the beginning of the eighth year of this thing in June. So that's crazy when I think about it. It just dawned on me because I was, I was uh, the number six is in my head for some reason. Yeah, you know, I've been doing Almer and Radio for six years, and I, all of a sudden, I was there, I went, wait a minute. I started counting years on my fingers. And um, <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, hard to believe. The um, I rebuilt my computer. I have this kind of really fast produce. I have this really fast computer, that, and I need it because when you create video content, audio content a little bit, but video content certainly... Um, the files are big. You gotta when you're copying, pasting, editing, doing all the shit you do with it. Um, you need something robust to move shit around, and so it wasn't as fast as it should. And I am a like wannabe member of the Geek Squad. Yeah, I know, I know it's pathetic, but it is what it is, man. And so as a wannabe member of the Geek Squad, um, 
I love and have always loved taking apart computers. I, you know, I started building them years, a few years ago and I like that shit. So I'm thinking, okay, I got a little time and I need to solve this issue. And so there's a place called the micro center down the 55. So it might be seven minutes from my house. So I get in my car. I don't know that I, I don't know that I was doing the show when I got my new car. I don't think I did. Mm-hmm. Mercedes. That's her name. That's what she is. I've always wanted one. Never owned one. I never owned a nice car. I mean, we had kids and stuff. And I mean, I my I thought my truck was nice, and it was. We had a Yukon Denali. That was nice. But it wasn't like Mercedes. And so I get a Mercedes. And she is sweet. She is sweet. Too. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hey, so let me tell you. Mercedes, you tap the gas. She runs on premium gas. You tap the gas. Girl can go, man. She gets up and goes. Yeah. Every time you get in the car, you're like, I like this car. So anyway, the whole thing's good. The micro center for me is like Toys R Us for kids. And I think Toys R Us is out of business, but whatever. Um, you know what I'm saying? I go into the computer store and, and, and these people sell computer components it's not like best buy where there's like computers it's like motherboards right it's like the the box that you put it all in right it's like everything that you would want to put fans cpu ram video cards so it's it's and i'm not a gamer and i've never been the only game that i played in my life that I enjoyed was a game called Sub Hunter. And um, it simulated you being a submarine captain. And you had to learn how to dodge. Um, you had to learn how to dodge destroyers and shit. And let me just tell you, man, when, when they pinged your ass, it was not, it did turn out well for me most of the time. But I'm not a, I'm not a thumb guy. That's more of a strategy game. Um, so, but this is like gamer's paradise. I mean, today, if you're a gamer, right, you, they have these crazy ass computers, multiple screens. I have multiple screens. I have three of them here and they're big. They're like 32 inch screens. So they sit in an arc around my desk. And so you got to have a robust video card to process all that. Uh, your your computer, your, the engine of it, right? Um, the processor has to be robust. The motherboard has to be robust. You got to have enough RAM to do it all. And so I thought as I was looking, you know, my computer was just slow to boot up. And I thought, you know what? I don't know. My RAM's too slow. And maybe I need to have a bigger, you know, a more powerful CPU. But I thought I bought decent stuff when I put this whole thing together two years ago. So I go over, I'm talking to the guy 
And he looks at me and goes, hey, I'd like to sell you all that stuff. He goes, but I don't think you need any of it. And I said, what do you think I need? He said, I think all you have to do is get rid of your old hard drive that Windows is on, reinstall Windows on a solid state drive, and you'll be good. He said, so it'll cost you 100 bucks for the solid state drive. I said, but reinstalling Windows, I mean, come on. He said, I know, it's a pain in the ass. But I said, okay. So that's what I did. Get a solid, and he was right. He was right. The things like a nitro rags, a nitro dragster, right, on uh, Sunday, 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 right, on that commercial. The nitros are here. Ah, all that. I remember that from when I used to do radio. I couldn't do those commercials, but we had guys who would. And I would, I would say, hey, when you go do that, when you do the commercial for that, I want to come hang out. And they would go, they would go, why? I said, I can't do that. I, I, that's a special skill, man. Were you guys in there screaming and yelling? And they would come get me like, hey, do you want to come in and hang out? I'm like, yeah. I would go in there and I'd be laughing my ass off because they would be screaming and yelling. You know how those commercials are. Um, it was funny stuff. So anyway, um, I go, I have to reinstall Windows with all the pain that goes in that. And then here's the other thing I decided I was going to do. So I have a desktop. I have a laptop. The laptop goes with me wherever I go do post-traumatic winning. And so, you know, when in doubt, right, just copy the whole disk to something else. So I had too many versions, too many copies of different things. So I decided I'm going to consolidate it on three different drives. C drive is Windows, right? Music and documents. D drive is all post-traumatic winning. E drive is all all marine radio. And H drive, don't ask me why it skipped to H, partitioning and shit like that, I guess. H drive is stuff that I'll take with me. That veritable nightmare of consolidating, going through and finding yet another version of your hard drive that you copied, not really your hard drive, but your docu documents, your downloads, so you don't forget anything in case the internet's out and you need a file, you have it, you know, all that stuff. I don't know, I must have had like seven versions of it. So I'm doing that. And I get it all done. It takes me the better part of the week to do it. And um, then I sit down to like do my normal shit and the file I use every day to do my finances in, spreadsheet, month by month, is gone. And I'm, you know, I watched Back to the Future the, <laughs> last night. If you haven't watched that, if you haven't watched Back to the Future, you should watch it. It is hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. All the all the little things that they put in that movie, that is like the whole Back to the Series Future uh, series is awesome. You know, I mean, they have these awesome exchanges. So, Future Boy, who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan, 
The actor? Yeah, who's the first lady? Jane Wyman. I mean, they do just hilarious shit. And the guy who plays Christopher, what is it? Christopher Lloyd who plays Doc Brown. I mean, he 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 does these awesome facial expressions. Um so anyway, I I, I was watching that. I made the Emmett Brown facial expression. <laughs> that one. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, let me see it. I have to have it someplace. I look. It's no place. I'm so thorough in the consolidation of these files, there's no redundancy anymore. Okay, so let me look in OneDrive. It's nowhere on my OneDrive in the cloud shit? No. It's got to be on Google Drive then because I know I had to stuff it someplace so I could grab it. It's not there either. And I'm going, no. Of all the files, I use that one the most. And um, I go in the bedroom, my other studio, and I sit down on my laptop, and it's there. And I was spared. So anyway, um, so that's what I've been doing. I'm a, but I, lo- I love computers. I love technology. And uh, I like to mess with it. Anyway, long-winded story. Sorry about that. Um, but it's okay. It's my show. Today I want you to meet a guy I met during my hiatus. And um, he contacted me. And, and this, is, this is the beauty of, um, of this thing that I've got involved in. And post-traumatic winning is into its fifth year, if you can believe that. It's, that's hard for me to believe. And I was putting something together of just emails and text messages that I've received over the course of five years. Because somebody asked me a question. Hey, if you were going to tell a commanding officer if he or she should should bring you in to speak, what would you say? And I said, well, I probably wouldn't say anything. I would just show them the stuff I've received. So I put together, I think it's 13 pages and seven different videos that people have sent me or made for me. And in the course of doing that, it just um, so many different stories, you know, came up. You know, I I saw emails I hadn't seen in a long time. And and so this whole thing about post-traumatic winning is just phenomenal. And... You're going to meet a guy named Wade Cates, former Marine, and um, whose 20-year-old son took his life last May. Wade will tell the story, but this is what's so cool about what I do. One of the, Wade got out, I think, as a staff sergeant. When he was in Iraq in 2003, one of the platoon commanders in his platoon, in his company, um, that guy, he drove four and a half hours after he heard about what had happened to sit and hang out with Wade. Fellow Marine. And he said, hey man, you need to reach out to this guy. He does this thing called post-traumatic winning. And he can help you. 
So Wade sent me this email, and I I looked at it, I read it, and uh, as I as I always do, if they have a phone number in it, I call that thing within thirty seconds of reading it. Hey man, what's up? Actually, it sounds more like, yo, is this Wade? Yeah, it is. Wade, Mike McNamara, what the fuck's going on, dude? So, um, just normal (laughs) Marine Corps, hey man, what's going on? And the story you're going to hear, you're going to hear Wade talk about his his life uh, growing up. He's a deep thinker, smart guy, and uh, you're going to hear him talk about that. And you're going to hear about the challenges that he and his family have faced uh, in the last year. And so I think I should just get out of the way. But the interview is not a short one. It's a couple hours. And I would tell you to make sure you listen to the whole thing because you'll learn from it. And so um, without further ado, this is Wade Cates, my friend. While I was gone, well, I wasn't really gone, but while I was on my little hiatus, uh, I met a guy who I want to introduce to you today. He's a former Marine, and I want you to meet him and, and, and listen to his story. His name is Wade Cates, and so Wade joins me now from Jackson, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Wade? How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing good, doing good. All right. The uh, first of all, before we talk about anything, we got to find out about you so we can form some opinion of whether we should believe you or not. Um, born and raised where? Jackson, Tennessee. Still live in your hometown. That's awesome. Yeah. And yep. Uh, tell us about your family. Uh, I'm in the middle of seven kids. I'm the son of a uh, country preacher. Um, most of my siblings live in the same town. I have one sister and brother-in-law in Kansas and one brother and sister-in-law in Abu Dhabi. The All right, so you, like me, a former Marine, and um, tell us how the Marine Corps gets on your radar. Uh, my uncle was a Marine, uh, three tours in Vietnam. Uh, I always had a uh, huge uh, respect for the Marine Corps. Um, and it was a goal from, of mine to uh, become a Marine, and I did. So your uncle, who was he with in Vietnam? What did he do? You know, he was in he was a tank mechanic at his MOS, but I haven't um, – he lives in Washington State, so I see him rarely. But uh, he's never talked about to anybody, even his family, about his experience in Vietnam. I don't think he worked so much as a tank mechanic in Vietnam, but I'm not sure. Got it. There's various stories floating around, but I'm not sure what's true. Got it. Um, so what year did you join the Marine Corps? How old are you? Uh, 1994. I was, uh, I guess, 19 years old. 19 years old. You enlist uh, after you finish high school? Yeah. I took a, well, I took a year off, and then I enlisted. Got it. All right. So what do you become in the Marine Corps? Oh, 311, Marine Corps Rifleman. Yeah. Backbone of the Marine Corps, baby. Absolutely. 
Okay. The only, so, thing, the only thing I wanted to be was a wrestling. Is that really the truth? That is the truth. I, I, I demanded that. You, because, you know, just so everybody knows, I call Wade the Socrates of the semi because <laughs> he's a he drives a semi. But he's he's a smart dude. And normally, I mean, you would become a mortarman or something that took a little bit of a little bit more intellect than being an 0311. And again, I love 0311s, but the way we, you know, stratify that is the 0351s, I think. Uh, the assault guys, those are, and the mortarmen are the smartest. And I don't know if machine gunners are smarter than infantrymen. They certainly don't seem to be. Um, and I love machine gunners. You are the strongest. I love, exactly. I love, I love machine gunners too. But, um, you would think they would have made you a mortarman or something. No, I, I insisted on that one because that's what I wanted. There was to me that was the only thing uh, that was the only thing I was going in the Marine Corps for. So wait a minute. So how does that work? Would you signed a guarantee or yeah. did, guaranteed M- guaranteed MOS, not MOS. Well, I was, yeah, and I was going into the reserves as well. So, but that that also plays into the closest company was also an infantry company. Got it. Got it. So. You, um, so that, would you say what year that was? 94. 94. So yep. you, uh, you do your thing and you're in the reserves leading up to the yep. goal, leading up to, um, the war in Iraq? Um, well, there's, there's, um, I was very active in the, uh, doing ADSW. I don't know if it was called that back then, but I did, uh, uh JTF six during the summer, uh, counter drug operations. Yeah. Explain it. Explain to everybody who Joint doesn't know what that. Six. Yeah, um, and where did you go? Where did you go, and what did you do? Spent a lot of time in the Sequoia National Forest looking for drug growers, which uh, to me was just wonderful because uh, while we did find some drug growers, and most of the time was just spent in the Sequoia National Forest, which was just awesome because it's a beautiful and, territory, where, very rugged. And where is that? Uh, California, in the uh, Socialist Republic of California. Easy now. You mean you meant to say the Golden State, okay? Right. You meant right. to say the Golden State. So where is the Sequoia National Forest? Got my Forest? propaganda wrong. Is it is it up in is it up in Sierra Nevadas? I'm from California. I don't even know where it is. Yeah, uh, Bakersfield, Porterville, up in uh, that area. Well, you know we have Lake Isabella. We have so many huge forests in California. Yes, it's hard to Absolutely. keep them straight. Um, yeah. All right, so so you go do that. What else do you do? Uh, went to Panama in 98, six-month deployment in 98. We were the first reserve composite company to replace an active duty battalion. And what were you doing? A forward deploy- uh, providing security in the canal zone. Uh, this was right at the beginning when we were the military. The U.S. was uh, turning over its bases to Panama. Right. I was on uh, Rodman Naval Base across the road from Howard Air Force Base. Uh, we provided security for the region. I... Went to a club, met a, met a beautiful Panamanian girl. She spoke no English. I spoke no Spanish. But twenty four years later, the language, hey, the language of love, though, amor was in the air. Yes, yes, very be, much. Be, so. be careful now. Um, <laughs> so you meet, and what's your wife's name? Rosario. You meet Rosario, and you're a lance corporal, a corporal at the time. What are you? Corporal, E-4, Corporal. 
Nice. Nice. Our team leader in Panama. <laughs> so when do you decide you're going to get married? Does she follow you to the United States? Does Do you get married while you're down there? Because, I mean, that was normally frowned upon, right? Corporals yeah. getting married during deployments? Yeah. Were you that guy? It was were not you, during were, deployment. Were you that guy? Um, I did not get married during the deployment. Um, it's kind of a, you know, one of those, oh, crap, what am I doing things? Because <laughs> I knew this was a crazy thing. But within within a month, I knew, for me, I, I knew this was the one, right? You knew so, within a month? Yeah, within a month. I know, of but wait, I mean, you got to kick the tires, man. You got to spend some time with him a, a month, really. I, you know, say it's, it's a crazy story and it makes no sense, but you knew. divine providence or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, the first three weeks we were there, we were on lockdown. My my platoon was on lockdown because the rest of the company was going through uh, jungle warfare training over Fort Sherman. So we took the security for the, for three weeks. Right. So the first time we get turned loose, I'm like, me and my buddy, Fernandez, who does not speak a lick of Spanish, even though his name is Fernandez and he's brown, does not speak a lick of Spanish. Said so we're going to this club dreams that we've heard about in town, right? Mm-hmm. And we go, and it's full of Panamanians, of course. Of course. And you know, we walk around, and I'm determined to dance with somebody. And I just see this girl. Eventually, after making a couple rounds of the club, I see this girl, and I was like, "Holy cow!" And she didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. But one of her friends came over and says something to me, and I tried to figure out what he's saying. So I asked her to dance. She danced. First time ever in my life I had ever been ever been on a dance floor, but I pulled it off. Did you know? And she's Panamanian, so she knows how to dance. Oh yeah, she knows how to dance. And you're Panamanian. you're moving her around like you're, you're moving around like Frankenstein. Oh, uh, you know, I'm just swaying a little bit. It's pretty crowded, fortunately. So there's not a whole lot of movement that <laughs> well favor. There was another Marine there that was a Spaniard. And, and he she translated didn't look at you and him. say, oh, hell no. She didn't? No. <laughs> wow. You know, that, that's, that, that's, what, that's why God, it's a miracle. Hey, exactly. That's why but, God was watching over you. Yeah. But I knew, you know, I just, I just knew. So I go home in, uh, what, October? I flew back down in November with a ring. Asked her to marry me officially. Whoa. She flew to the United States February the second, nineteen ninety nine, and we were married February the sixth, nineteen ninety nine. Wow! All right, so so you do the Panama thing, you come back, and then are are you one of those kind of like you're in the reserve, but you're active reserve, and so you're getting paid by the Marine Corps, you're going to you know, the reserve center all the time, or are you, or do you have another career? What's your life? Well, like? at this point, in 98, 98 to 2000, I worked uh, security at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis. <sighs> okay, um, stop, stop, stop. Is there a cooler place on the planet than that, s- brother? Oh, my God, that, man. That is sacred ground. That is sacred ground. You talk I to any there. you talk to anybody who's been there or been affiliated with with um, St. Jude's, the Shriners that that do so much, raise so much money and do so much good stuff, yeah. and um, you can't talk for thirty seconds before somebody's crying because it's that yeah. crying the crazy miracle stuff they see. Yeah, because because I was a Marine and and not to be arrogant, but I look good. 
I was fit. Wait, you know, I, whoa, I looked like, whoa. I looked like what a did Marine. you just say? You just, not to be vain, but you said I look good. Yeah, you know, I look good. So they put me on the main gate, the front gate right there. If you've ever seen St. Jude, they have the pavilion there that looks like a Middle Eastern architect uh, domed, uh, not a mosque, but that type of architect that was built in honor of Danny Thomas because Danny Thomas was the product of parents of Syria. One was Syrian and one was Lebanese, and I do not remember which was which. But the uh, funding corporation that funds all of St. Jude is called ALSAC, American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities. And that is how Danny Thomas built St. Jude. And he is buried there on the grounds behind the pavilion by the front gate. I didn't know that. And his wife died while I was on duty, well, while I was working there. And I was there the day they placed her in the tomb. Wow. Is it, and, and that is the international headquarters, Memphis, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. That's where all the research is done. It's primarily a research hospital. They right. do, I mean, most of the buildings there are research buildings, but they do have a lot of patients that come through and some in, in-house patients. Got it. Got it. So you're working there, and you're in the Marine Corps Reserve. And what yeah. you're, where are we at right now? What year? We get up to 2000 is when I start really my ADSW work. And I was on ADSW from 2000 to 2006, basically. And that stands for active duty? Special work. Special work. And what are you doing? And uh, funeral support. Oh. Uh, the tri-state, Tennessee, oh, Mississippi, Arkansas, has a massive... Um, veteran population. Kilo 323 out of Memphis, Tennessee did did more funerals every year than Nathan and I in Washington. I've done over somewhere between 300 and 350 funerals. And And most of the time, because it's a small unit, it's two people, right? You don't have the full, full, unless it's, uh, you know, a really high-ranking person or somebody that died. If somebody died on active duty, then we would bring in you know, everybody we could, we'd have a firing detail and all that. But most of the times, these were just, um, you know, old warriors that passed away. We would go to some podunk cemetery. We would have a, a boom box with a CD that the uh, funeral director would hit play when we signaled. We would render honors, fold the flag, present it to the family. How do you fold the flag yeah. with two people? It only takes two people to fold the flag. Do So the flag's on the casket? And so, yeah, you're just, okay, got it. You're at each end. One holds holds and one folds. Got it. Wow. I've presented in every weather situation you can imagine. And there's, we know, considering our job, there's humor in every situation, right? Yes. And there's funny stories that come out of funerals that at the time you're just like, oh, crap. But later they're just funny. I mean, it's just. Is we did a funeral for a fantastic Vietnam combat veteran. We got the we got the facts from headquarters Marine Corps to go to Boonville, Mississippi, which is a hick town. It's a nice town, but it's a hick town, right? Hey, be so careful! Be careful with the age word, okay? Well, Just- you know, here it comes. <laughs> I'm gonna get it. He walked up to me, stuck out his hand, and said, "Sergeant, that was the smartest thing I ever seen a Marine do in my life." Because I didn't go down. Well, you know what? I mean, that's what they teach at 8th and I is how do we make something like that look yeah. like it's part of the event? 
whether they're dragging people back into the bushes on the backside, right? Yeah. Whether they drop a rifle or any of the other things that happen, how do we make it look like people ask, hey, did they do that on purpose? Like, uh, <laughs> no, they, do, they did not do that on purpose. I, I, well, do, I mean, when I talk about going down, I literally, that, that circle, that circle of vision was black on the outside and that circle was getting smaller. And I knew I was going. I was like, really? Got to do something. Really? Well, now you see that, you know, those guys go face down in the summer when they do like, you know, the sec def changes or something like that. And it's like, right. it's like 102 in DC with 94% humidity. And they're standing out there for those speeches. And, and, you know, you can tell like, Oh, he went and got drunk again last night. What an idiot. Right. Right. Now, no, nobody knows how to except us, but uh, right. anyway, the, um, all right. So, you're doing that kind of work and uh and then the gulf or the gulf war and then the war yep. in iraq starts to loom in front of you tell us about that yeah well uh you know i was i was on adsw 9-11 um which obviously it was a high high stress or high high attentive moment right. but then we didn't deploy until 2003 and uh um 323 was supposed to have been the replacement battalion, the per replacement infantry battalion for the attack, because the original estimates, I'm told, were that you know that the that at least one battalion would drop below functioning strength and they would have to be replaced in the attack. Well, that didn't happen. We just rolled right over them. So we moved in and started SASO, S-E-S-O, so Security Was it Security? Well, Dave Gimmon, I forgot the acronym. Security and Stabilization Operations is basically what it was. I don't know if it's SASO or SSSO. Anyway, whatever. Um, so we just moved in to the, the middle of the country of Iraq and the Wazi province. Our battalion commander became the governor of the province. And our job was to – we were based out of Alcoot with the, the airfield there, Blair Field. Right, right. Uh, and we just pushed out, ran all the bad guys out of the smaller towns and the regions, tried to restart, you know, city functions with the elders in the area and things like that. But my job, uh, we didn't have a gunnery sergeant. We didn't have a company gunny. So I was a senior sergeant, so I filled that billet. And I had the uh, backing of a master sergeant. So if anything, I couldn't handle it, master sergeant would handle it. So tell me about your time in Iraq. Um, is Did you deploy? How many times did you deploy? And um, give, me, give me what you did, and then give me... Give me something you learned. Um, how many, so, how many times did you did you deploy? I deployed three, well, four times if you count Panama, but um, three times: uh, once to Iraq and twice to the uh, horrendous duty location of Okinawa, nice. where I was on the uh, general staff. I was G three there uh, on Okinawa, Camp Courtney. But, but uh, in Iraq, you know, we were—I would say—we were there in the best time possible because you know the the, the attack. They kicked the door in. Most people, the bad guys had their heads down. We had to take care of business on occasions, but it wasn't, wasn't anything serious. Um, they were just starting to experiment with IEDs as we were leaving. We had a couple uh, convoys got hit, but nothing major because they were still trying to figure it out. Um, for the most part, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was a great experience for me. Um, we tried to do as much as we could for the local economy. Mm -hmm. So me filling the bill of company gunny, I was buying as much stuff as possible in the market. So I was in the market every day. I got to know people. Um, 
and you know, I, I made friends with some people that uh, saved my life because they would. Uh, there was one in specific. He was a he was a Kurdish man who used to be very successful in northern Iraq before Saddam took everything he had and put him in prison for a number of years. But him and his family, his wife and three kids, lived in an eight foot by eight foot um, just structure on top of a building, and he'd throw cigarettes on the street right there outside the police station, which was where we would enter the market. So every day, he would tell me, give me thumbs up or thumbs down of whether or not it would be safe in the market. And I, you know, I really think that guy probably saved my life on more than one occasion by telling me, don't go out there today just because people are too riled up. But I had tons of positive interactions with everyday people, and especially in Al-Qut, uh, some in Al-Hay, but mostly in Al-Qut. So that was a great experience for me. Tell, um, tell everybody where Al-Qut is. I mean, for those, I mean, people generally are familiar with Iraq, but tell everybody where it is. It's right on the banks of the uh, Euphrates there. Um, it's kind of central Iraq, almost right in the middle. I think it's, what, 70 or 80 miles south of Baghdad? Right. It's, my geography is it's, it's roughly that distance. Um, so, and, 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 and describe, I mean— if if you're south of, of Baghdad, we you know Fallujah, Ramadi, uh, Husayba Al Qaim, that is all um, Western Iraq. Uh, Al Anbar, yep. uh, Al Qut is South Central, and but it's in the valley, right? I mean that valley is is farm country, right? Yeah, and I I think it's well, I, I maybe it's one of the largest cities in Iraq, but especially it's the one south of Baghdad. But, you know, the stories we always heard when we were there was how much Saddam and his Uday and Kusay, the sons, hated people south of Baghdad. They literally tried to cut off the Euphrates River from flowing south just to punish those people. Um, but it, it was a and, and was it, place. The majority of the population down there, was it Shiite? Yes? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah that's where it, you know, uh, Karbala... And what's the other city? I mean, those are huge um, Islamic shrines in Iraq, and they're they're yeah. they're Shia shrines. Um, and so, and Saddam, for those of you who have forgotten, I mean, they were Sunnis. And, yeah. and I, I will tell you, I mean, I was in Western Iraq, and we would hear the legend of Uday and Kusay and what, the things yeah. that they did. I mean, just horrible, you know, that, horrible human beings. That's that's one of the examples of uh, why why. Communication and intelligence sharing is so important. The day Uday and Kuse died, we didn't know that that had happened. There was no comm across the network telling us that Uday and Kuse had been killed. But uh, Al-Qud at the time was a population of approximately 270,000 people. It's a, it's a big city for Iraq. And, you know, come evening time, well, what do they do? people celebrate and how do people celebrate in Iraq? they shoot their guns in the air right so we didn't know this so you've got the entire town going off (laughs) tracers in the air and we've got one uh, one platoon stationed in the uh, bad part of town across the proverbial tracks and the literal tracks it was on the other side of the railroad tracks and this was not a good section of town but they had set up liaisons with some of the elders that were still in that bad section and they had gave, given one of the, the elders a red flare to use in case of emergency. So what happens? Well, 
everybody's celebrating Uday and Kuzi's demise. <laughs> and the old guy's like, well, I'm going to get in on this. I got something nobody else has. He shoots off the red flare, which immediately causes, like, oh, crap. We got to go see what's going on with this guy. So a squad goes out to find out what's going on. Well, they find out what's going on, and they're trying to get back to their base, which is the fire station. And while 99.9% of these people are just celebrating, the uh, the bad guys, the assholes, uh, take this opportunity to start shooting these guys up. Well, they're running and gunning up these narrow streets trying to get back to the fire station. And a car turns down that street just driving like crazy. And it hits straight toward one Marine, then another. And these 18, 19 year old guys got to make a decision. What do they do? Because all the evidence points to this car is trying to kill some, kill them, right? right? So they light it up. That's no question. You light it up. Right. Well, it turns out there's a family in that car. Right, right. Mother and father are, are shot to pieces. And fortunately, the three kids in the back are unharmed. But those Marines got to live with that. Because someone didn't say, get on the horn and say, hey, stand by. This is the, this is the latest Intel update. This is what you can expect. And, you know? I, and I, would, I mean, and that, um, those kind of experiences, uh, we had a similar experience. At a, we used to do these snap BCPs all around the, pro, uh, the province of Alambar. And we would find bad guys moving around. But what we what we would do is, at a, at a certain time, everybody went out and just put down these vehicle checkpoints and started checking people. And we caught bad guys all the time doing it. And one day, and we had spike strips and we had flares and we had concertina. You know, this guy, he sees it and he hits the gas. And they shoot the flares and he keeps coming. And they shoot into it. They, they shoot in, into the engine compartment because we were no strangers to this by in two thousand four. Yeah. And he he keeps coming. He's on the accelerator, and then they shoot, uh, lose control. Vehicle goes in the canal. Three little kids in the back. They drown. Wife in the in the passenger seat, and he survived. And they, and they get him out, and they ask him like, what 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 were you doing? And he said. You know, you're the infidel. You can't tell me what to do in my country. Yeah. And the, but those Marines are the ones that pulled the little kids out of the car, tried to save them, pulled the wife's body out of the car, and you just the, the things that you had to live with in in operating there. You come yeah. home. Um, what was coming home like? Did you change much? Um, in my mind, I didn't change at all. Right. In the mind of others, I changed significantly. Um, or, and, and more profoundly over time, but I was oblivious to it. Now, there was one more um, significant experience in Iraq. Um, that it's the only one that uh, really left a mark on me negatively, I think. Um, June 6, 2003, Blairfield, uh, that's where the battalion headquarters are. We've pulled back to there. We're operating out of Blairfield. Uh, it's the middle of summer. 130 degrees. So the CBs are going to build us a hut, a 20 by 30 hut, 
put air conditioning in it, and we've bought a satellite in town so we can watch football, right? So the CBs are working away at this. Um, on the morning of June 6th, um, I was headquarters platoon sergeant as well, so I took my turn as on radio watch to give my guys, make sure they got sleep, because they were part of our drivers that day. So I come off a of radio watch around 8 o'clock, and I go catch an hour nap, and I'm sitting on the side of my rack putting my boots on. And the uh, the CBs had a, uh, a, I don't know, I call it a chop saw, circular saw, gas-powered saw that they were cutting larger wood with, right? And that was running outside, and you could hear everybody laughing and joking. And as I'm putting the boots on, the building is rocked by an explosion. Grab my rifle, run out the front door. To my left, I see a lot of people huddled on the ground, sheltering, kind of covering each other. And in front of me is a body. Um, Bodies decimated, uh, lower jaws missing, split from crotch to chin, what used to be the chin. All internal organs liquefied and gone. Um, Obviously, there had been an explosion. I got guys rushing out of the building now. I turn and push guys out to set up security because I thought the saw had exploded, but I didn't know. Who knows? I mean, there's no information, so let's secure the perimeter, see what's going on. Um, <clears throat> battalion comes over because the battalion headquarters is just right down the road. They, they set up, do the investigation, they, they do the recovery of the body. It turns out that uh, Petty Officer Third Class Bollinger had found a UXO, probably a 40-millimeter unexploded high-explosive. And uh, he had that in his pocket. And that morning, he took it out and set it on that workbench and tapped it with a tool, and it exploded. And that uh, took him out. Um, me, I'm the company filling the, you know, I'm the company, they call it police sergeant, filling the ability of company gunny. You you, pr- you do what you got to do. You, you push your guys out. You make sure the perimeter's covered. I remember walking back down the hallway. There's a there's a Navy CB who comes in the back door, and I was like, hey, man, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm okay. And I was like, man, you got dirt all over your face? And I reach up to brush some of the dirt off. It's not dirt. His face is, the right side of his face is covered in shrapnel. So I take him out and find a corpsman, get him processed. You know, they, they we figured out that this is not an attack. This is an internal issue something you know something happened here and uh secure the scene the uh, battalion comes in investigates photographs um takes the body to 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 send it to bethesla and um later that day well you know i'm still still got my job to do i still have to go pick up chow and water for the evening so i go get my humvee and uh bollinger's uh index finger is laying on the gear shift. So, car went up, we bagged this up, send it to be with the rest of the remains, and I carry on. I do my job. I put it in a box. And I didn't realize uh, for years that that event affected me. It left its imprint. I'd seen other events, but that one left its imprint on me. And I never went back and opened that box. And one day, um, I got to know, uh, become friends with some Vietnam veterans, and one of the veterans, um, who is my mentor, name is Thomas Buck. He was with America on Vietnam. 
one of the highest decorated um, servicemen in American history. One day he got in my face and said, hey, excuse my language. He said, hey, you're fucked up. I said, what do you mean? He's like, you, you don't even see this. Your wife tells me the stories of you waking up in the middle of the night screaming or grabbing her or just gasping for air. You're having nightmares. You're forgetting, you know, you're forgetting normal things left and right. And that's what got me into the VA. But that was the significant event from Iraq. So you come home with all that and I think I'm normal. You think you're normal. What do you, what are you doing at that time? Are you still working in Memphis at St. Jude's? I continued, well, I, no, I, I continued on AS, ADSW for another six months, finished out 2003. And then I got a billet with uh, three MEF G3 for six months. So I flew to Okinawa, did that, went back to Kilo ADSW for another six months. And then I picked up another six month rotation and three MEF G3 in Okinawa, went back, did that. And, uh, when I got back, I was uh, just kind of done. You were done. Yeah, they uh, they made me the, you know, hindsight tells you what you should have done, right? Right. <laughs> tells you what a dumbass you were. But uh, they made me an offer in Okinawa. They have a reserve unit in Okinawa that only, they made me the offer that they would fly me to Okinawa once a year for 45 days. I would do all my requirements in 45 days for the exercise season in Okinawa mm-hmm. and go home. That's all I had to do. And I could have retired, which was a dumb, dumb offer to pass up. But I was like, no, I'm going home. And I did. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, hey, we, hey, we all make mistakes. <laughs> what, um, yeah. so you, um, you start doing, so then you come home and what do you do? Yeah. Um, I, you know, get out of the Marine Corps. I start uh, and what, working what, at a restaurant what, for a while. What rank are you now? Oh, I'm an old sergeant. Okay, so I you... never put in for staff sergeant because I thought I, I was like, if they want me, to, if they want me to be a staff sergeant, they can make me a staff sergeant. Got by it. golly, I'm not going to request to be a freaking staff sergeant. The um, all right. So you start looking for a career, right? Yeah. I, I I worked in customer service. I'm I'm bilingual English Spanish. I, I did um, I worked for the, the largest Spanish book distributor in the United States. That uh, worked through an entity called Perseus. I did customer service for Perseus and, and did their handle their bilingual and domestic stuff. Not all of it. But I was part of a team. Um, I worked in the hospital for about eighteen months, doing. Um, not a, I'm not a trained medical professional, but I did clinical work where I went and turned patients, responded to emergencies, picked up a lot of people out of the floor, uh, bagged bodies, took them to the morgue. I was in every unit every day all throughout the hospital for about 18 months. And then I uh, went back to uh, driving a big rig, and that's what I've been doing pretty much since then, one way or another. Driving a big rig. Just so you know, yeah. um, Wade uh does uh seminars that i put on and he'll join and he has the most incredible bluetooth device i've ever heard in my life i mean seriously um you can't even hear you can't hear anything other than his voice you don't hear the ambient car noise you don't hear the cars adjacent to him you don't hear anything it's absolutely silent and it's made by who 
Blue Parrot. Is that like Blue a is that like a truck headset? Is that like a trucking industry industry standard? Uh, it's it's the trucking it's the gold star of the trucking industry, in my opinion. Um, you can buy them at any truck. I mean, you can buy them at different places, but they're predominantly at truck stops, and that's how they developed their technology. Was uh, you know to to the noise counseling because a big rig's noisy. I mean, you know, right. that's a, that's a huge engine, exhaust, all that stuff rattling around. It weighs eighty thousand pounds. So they they really worked on that uh, technology. Uh, well, it's it's amazing. All right, so you start driving trucks when? Oh, geez, when did I first start? I think I first started officially got certified in two thousand and nine. I think, and I did uh, over the road for a while, and uh, I had young kids at home, so I I stopped that, and that's when I. I worked at the hospital and, and, and at Perseus at the book distributor. Right. And then when I got out of that, I went back to driving the truck. All right. Kids so you, a little bit bigger. So how old, how old are your kids at the time? Who are they? Um, my son, Juan, is, uh, well, let's see, when I started driving truck again, this was in 2013 or 2014. Gosh, you're going to get me hung up on ages. Uh, he, Juan was born in 2001, Esperanza. My daughter was born in 2007. The, so y'all, uh, y'all do the math. Got it. Um, so you you're driving trucks, and yep. you man your family, and we'll fast forward to last May. Um, yep. Talk about last May, and what do you want people to know about Juan taking his own life at the age of twenty? Uh Well, yeah, let, let me let me let me kind of tee this up a little bit. Um, your son, you need to tell us about him a little bit. But he, yep. like a lot of young people in this country, doesn't go to school for almost two years. Yeah, the mentoring, the friendship, uh, the coaches, the teachers, right? And I think you've told me at one point that they they the police taped off the soccer field near your house. So they couldn't even go down and yep. do that. This is young yep. kids outside. This is what, this is what we did to them. And so, yep. I mean, you're raising your kids, uh, you and Rosario and, uh, you know, doing the normal thing parents do. Um, tell us about Juan and then in whatever way, shape or form, tell us about the events, uh, surrounding his death. And then I want to talk to you because I, just so everybody knows, um, Wade is a miracle. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to, when I do post-traumatic winning, I meet people like Wade on a regular basis. But um, he's going to tell you how we met. And um, and for me, meeting him and, and having him, you know, do post-traumatic winning has been a very cool thing for me to watch. Uh, the miracle that Wade is uh, the way he affects other people. I told you he's the Socrates of the semi. And, and I only say that partly in jest. Um, he's a deep thinker and he's a deep guy. And uh, he's in the midst of this fight to live a great life. Um, but he is a miracle without a doubt. So with all that as a kind of preamble, uh, introduce us to Juan and your life and then tell us about what happens with Juan. Yeah, uh, you know, Juan, 
uh, you know, this is <clears throat> this is the hard part. Uh, Juan was named after his grandfathers. Um, his father, his grandfather on his mother's side was a Spaniard, um, survivor of the Spanish Civil War, who, who left Spain at that time, moved to Panama. But um, and he's also named after my father, whose middle name was Leon, but in Spanish we say Leon, so it's Juan de Leon. Um, outgoing kid, full of life. Um, never was um, the star academic or the star athlete, but he had a way of reaching out to uh, whoever was around him. He brought inspiration to the people around him, and he had a way of seeking out uh, I hate to use the term, but it's the common term now, the marginalized, the less popular, the weak kids, even the geeks, he would find intentionally and befriend them. Um, he started to spiral, especially you know, maybe it's 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 an error on my part or a um, a fallacy on my part to conflate it specifically to the lockdowns, but that's what magnified it, right? I don't think it's a stretch at all because I think if you look at the data in the country, it would tell you that Juan um, is one of the many and young teenager men in particular, right? Um, yeah. If you look at if you look at that data. It is, it's, it's terrifying to look at. And yes. you realize yes. what uh, what an impact uh, isolation has. I mean, I know that from just, it is the way people deal with trauma is that they numb themselves and they, 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 they isolate themselves. And uh, maybe not physically, but emotionally they isolate themselves. And so here we have this forced form of emotion, of isolation. And I don't think it's a stretch one bit. I think it's just a statement of fact. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I just you know, like I said, I'm no, I'm with you. Anyway, anyway, so they take away his project graduation, which in I don't know if you'll have that in California, but in the South, it's a big tradition where families fund uh, basically a party for graduation night, um, so the kids aren't out there on their own drinking and doing stupid stuff because they're going to do that anyway. But we we try to control that. No prom. No project graduation, no graduation parties, all that's taken away. Classes are taken away. Juan was a magnet for people. He wasn't the top of his class, but he was just a, he was just a people magnet, and he attracted all types. He didn't care, you know. And and his his friends will tell you this. Juan was a peacemaker, but if you wanted to rumble, it was on. It was on in a second. So you chose yourself, right? <laughs> One of his best friends was talking about this. It's like, you know, it, it, it was your choice. You could be his friend or we could just go at it right now. I'm fighting either way. That's the way Juan was. But, and then the city, you know, Juan played soccer for, for the school, but then he played, you know, there's a, there's a city park just about two miles from here. It's got like six or seven soccer fields. 
and all the uh, Hispanics and Arabics and everybody goes out there and plays soccer. Well, Juan was big in that scene, and he played three or four nights a week. He would just go to the park, like go to the North Park. All right, go ahead, son, have fun. And they'd play until they couldn't play anymore, and he'd come home. Well, the powers that be, I don't want to be too derogatory, but the powers that be, on the local level, decided that, uh, no, this is not going to happen. We're going to seal the parks. They closed all the parks. They closed all the playgrounds. So the, everybody, you know, didn't have any place to go. There was, I'm sorry for ranting, but there was an event that the local mothers came up with, which is fantastic. When the lockdown, when the first 15 days to slow the spread started, these local mothers were like, all right, our kids are at home and you're going to stare crazy. Let's do something. They came up with this fantastic idea called bear hunts. And the idea was everyone would dress up teddy bears and put them in their front yard. And if kids would get in the car with the parents or the mother and drive around town, take pictures of the bear, the bear hunt, and post them on, on Facebook, social media. And the mayor shut that down. It's like, what? In what world does that make sense? You don't even want the kids with their people that they're already in the house with, in the car, just driving around, getting out of the house, breathing fresh air, doing this innocent bear hunt to entertain them because they're locked down and they're separated from all their friends. But anyway, um, this comes to a head in May. Well, you know, we, we one never became violent toward people, but he was having emotional outbreaks. And I didn't understand it. I honestly didn't understand it. Um, he would have these outbursts where he was absolutely emotionally distraught, but not violent. And you're trying to figure out, and I would talk to him, and I'd talk to him for a long time, and we'd calm down, and we'd go through it. On uh, May the 5th, I'm on the road. Now, when, when I, I, I guess an important part of this, uh, my, my truck driving for the last few years has not been over the road. It's usually been out and back, like one night out, and I'll be back home. And I go out, be gone a night, and be back home. So that's what it's been. But May the 5th, my wife calls me. Juan is in an emotional state, and he's arguing with her. And he just will not, I can't calm him down. So I told her, he is in such an emotional state, you need to call the police. And she did. They came to the house. And they arrested him on misdemeanor, um, not violence, misdemeanor um, vandalism because he had knocked a vase off the counter and it broke. That gave him probable cause to arrest him. So on the 6th, I bail him out. I come home and I talk to him. I'm sorry, my days are backwards. That happened. That happened. I bailed him out on the 5th, May the 5th. We come home and we sit down and we talk and we talk for over an hour. It's like, Juan, what's going on? And he's like, Papa, I'm I'm going to handle this. I'm going to fix this. I was like, Juan, I've got I've got to go to Savannah, Georgia. Why don't you go with me? Why don't you just ride in the truck with me? We'll, we'll be gone overnight. We'll come back. He's like, No, I want to stay, and I want to handle this. I'm going to make it better. 
I'm going to fix this. And I said, okay, I got to go. Will you come with me? He's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. I was like, are you going to hurt yourself? Are you in danger? He said, no. I said, okay, son. I said, I love you, son. He said, I love you, Papa. I got on the road. I called him approximately 3, 3.30 that afternoon. Hey, how you doing? Good. Clean my room. Are you okay? Yeah, Papa, I'm okay. I love you, son. I love you, Papa. Those are the last words I ever heard from my son. My son and my daughter both trained in judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And they were supposed to go train that night. Uh, the sensei there is a retired uh, special forces officer from the Army. And the standard, because there's other kids around, the standard of the dojo is if you're arrested, then there's a suspension and a time, cooling off time before you're allowed back in the dojo because there's minors there. And Juan was suspended from the dojo. <clears throat> so Rosario and Esperanza go train. Esperanza trains, they come home. Juan's room is upstairs above the garage. They see the lights on, but they assume he's just up there, so they go to bed. May the 6th, Esperanza gets up, Rosario gets up, getting ready to take Esperanza to school. They're about to leave the house. Rosario tells Esperanza to go upstairs and close the door to Juan's room so that Juan's dogs stay up there. And as she goes up the stairs, into the room. Uh, the room is longer than it is wide. The doorway is on the right side. Closets to the left as you come in. And as she gets to the top of the stairs, she sees his feet. She thinks he's asleep in the floor. So she's just going to tap his feet and tell him they're leaving. And as she gets further into the room, she sees blood. And then she sees the shotgun. And she stops there. She doesn't see his face and his head. She goes down the steps screaming. Wife calls 911. Within literally five minutes, the police are here. <clears throat> My brother, who's a captain on the local fire department, gets the call. He's on duty. Takes his unit out of service. He's here in five minutes. He handles things. I wake up in uh, Savannah, Georgia. I didn't get there late, so I slept in a little bit. And I look at my phone, and I look at the Find My Phone feature because I called Juan, he didn't answer. So I look at my Find My Phone. Juan's phone's at the hospital, and I zoom in on the hospital, and I can see he's at the ER because I know the hospital I worked there. So I call Rosario. She doesn't answer the first time. I call again. She answers. 
And I say, how's Juan? And she says, what? And I said, how is Juan? And she said, just a minute. And I can tell she kind of stepped away. And then my brother comes on the phone. He's like, hey, dude. And I said, how is Juan? And I said, uh, he said, uh, he's gone. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I said, how do you do it? He said, shotgun. And I've got guns in the house, but they're got all the ammunition locked up. The guns were just empty vessels, but there was a old 20-gauge shotgun we used as a snake gun on a boat. Single-shot break action HR shotgun from 1960-something. And he had found one shell. And he used that to end his life. And he laid on the floor all night without anybody knowing he was there. And that's one of the things that tortures my wife to this day is she fears that he didn't die instantaneously. But 20-gauge high velocity to the face, you're gone. But So I had to drive 630 miles home with that on my mind. Um, my buddy Buck, the Vietnam vet, was waiting for me at my house when I got here at 3.30 in the morning. Esperanza and Juan's sensei was here waiting on me. My two brothers picked me up at the truck where I parked the truck and brought me home. And as a family, we uh, tried to figure out how we were going to say goodbye. One of... Uh, when we were deployed to Iraq, uh, we, we were, as a reserve unit, we didn't have many officers. We had actually had a major filling the billet of a platoon commander. That major was Dan Coombs. He retired as a lieutenant colonel. But he was a platoon commander of, I want to say, third platoon. I, want to, I hope that's right. I know it went second, but it was third. Um, I hadn't seen him since 2003. But before we lost Juan, we had reconnected through our love of cigars, through a cigar site on Facebook. We were, we were both uh, fans of the same. I'm, I'm a huge Perdomo cigar fan. We reconnected and that, and he had just, reached out to me. Just for the record, him saying he's a huge cigar fan is an understatement, okay? <laughs> that's just so, just, just, just so everybody knows that's not entirely accurate. It's beyond that. It's a problem. So as well, somebody who's just an observer of it, right, it's a problem. So, But yeah, that, well, I'm that's what up, you and Dan I, have in common. Yeah, well, I'm getting up at 2 in the morning to go to the airport in, in Memphis to fly to Miami to fly to Nicaragua to tour the Perdomo factory next week. So There you go. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I told you it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> but but uh, Dan... I knew him as Major Coombs, but Lieutenant Colonel Coombs reached out to me and said, hey, you know. Well, I mean, we, we had seen each other in, in 
we didn't really chatted or anything. We just saw each other in the group. And he reached out to me when this happened and you know, gave support. He's like, hey, I'd like I'd like to meet up with you one day. You know, we smoke a cigar and talk about old times and stuff. And the Saturday after Juan's memorial service, I invited my my brother and and a couple friends and who were cigar smokers and Dan to come over to my garage. We were just going to sit, you know, like I said, I was a basket case, you know, trying to do the best I can, but I was a basket case. I'll smoke cigars and talk tell stories and you know do whatever. And uh, Dan Coombs lived in Chattanooga, which is four four and a half hours from here. And he drove that distance just to sit in the garage and smoke a cigar with me and talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. We talked about. Of course, we talked. You you can't get together with an old somebody you've served <laughs> with in the past and 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 just reminisce about who you know, what you did. And, tell stupid stories and make stuff up or whatever. You know, it's just, it's irresistible. But he took the time to do that. And he's a true friend. But um, one of the things he told me about was, say, hey, you you know, the all, all Marine Radio and post-traumatic winning, you need, you know, maybe you should look out to the, you know, reach out to this guy. So. And and how did, how had he heard? Is, did he just, did you just listen to All Marine Radio? Is that how he heard about it? I I think so. I don't know his story of how he got connected <clears throat> to it. I think I think it was just something he listened to. You know, it, he still does work. He still does contract work for DOD. Okay. Uh, he does. You know, he, he goes to Quantico. I don't know. I don't want to lie, but it, I mean, he, he's at Quantico a lot doing um, confidential intel stuff. So he, okay. he he writes briefings and debriefs and stuff like that. But yeah. you know he's still he's still in that world. He's retired from Marine Corps. But he's still in that world. But you know, and he told me so. Hey, you know, told me about Mac and and All Marine Radio. We he talked about what was the, I don't remember what the entry point. It was something about a current event and something you discussed on All Marine Radio. But he also talked about post traumatic winning and that. So I checked it out, and you know, one night, very shortly after that, I don't remember if it was that night or another night, very shortly after that, I was, you know, had quite a bit to drink, and while that is not that is not the solution, obviously, um, to be honest, I I don't think I don't think I would still be here if I'd hadn't because I can't take. Narcotics. Um, I can't. I got meds from the VA, and if I take those meds from the VA, I literally have conversations with dead people all night, and it's not fun. So, but you know, I'm not making an excuse for alcohol. I'm just saying, legitimately, I don't think I would have survived the first week without it. But don't use that as a crutch. Um, but I'd had a bit to drink that night. And it was probably three in the morning when I looked up all Marine Radio and. I sent Mac an email, told him a little bit about my situation and what had happened, and I think I'd asked, you know, what can what can I do or how he could help me, and I closed the phone and I went to sleep. Well, I didn't know it, but Mac answered within five minutes of that, <laughs> told me to call him. I didn't see it till the next day. And when I did call him, I was somewhere in East Tennessee in the mountains, and we barely had a connection, but we, we eventually connected. And we started talking, and I went through the um, went through the seminar. Um, 
and started implementing those steps. And through those implementing those steps, and you know, I I don't blow smoke up anybody's rectum, but you know, it's it's not it's not instantaneous. It's a, it's a journey, but it puts you on the path. And um, on that path, I've met other people, and I've been able to share one story. And for me, the only thing that has brought joy to me in the last nine months is to see other people helped by one story. Because one's life ended. But through giving voice to his story, I think his influence can go on forever. So... There's people that are going to listen to this that have had a similar experience. Um, and you're a thinker and you have a lot of time to think. What are the things that you've learned to do that help you deal with that, which is too much, right? I mean, I, I always talk about the circle. The circle of life is not leaving the planet before your children do. That's not the circle yeah. of life, and my family's dealt with that. And so what are the things, Wade, that you've learned that you would offer to to people that have either gone through this experience or going through this experience? Um, and then after after we talk about that, I want to talk about the whole piece of isolation, um, I can tell you that, you know, it's it's one of the things. First of all, it's the way we do it. We don't want anybody to know how fucked up we are. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if it's Marines. And I do this, I do post-traumatic winning now with civilians in groups. And it, the, the stories, it's, it's just a different, it's just a different set of maybe a different gender. It's, it's a different profession. It's the same fucking story all the time, yeah. right? And, and so... Yeah. Bad things happen. I don't want anybody to know that I'm really struggling with this, so I'm not going to say shit. And uh, then I find some way to numb myself. It might be martial arts. It might be music. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be work. There's, I mean, fill in the blank, right, with a numbing agent. And, that, and, yeah. and we white-knuckle it and do that till we can't do that anymore. And isolation is an accelerant to that. Alcohol is an accelerant to that. Financial distress is an accelerant to that. So talk to me about um, what you've learned. And then I want to talk about the whole aspect of isolation, especially with young people. Yeah. Well, you know, to be, I mean, to be honest and, and, and to uh, just, just to be honest, um, all of those things that you mentioned accumulate, you know, just, it was, it was, all of it came together at the same time. Uh, Finances fell apart. My entire world, I mean, what I didn't realize from what happened in 2003 was I was slowly retreating into a bunker of my own mind. And eventually I was just there to survive the day. Each day, that was as far as my fight went. No plans for the future, 
nothing. I'm going to make sure today's stuff is taken care of. That's it. I'm going to work. I've always worked hard, and I, you know, I work extremely hard. But my thoughts for whatever. I'm in this bunker. I'm just going to take care of today. I'm going to do what takes care of you know to make sure, make sure tomorrow happens. But that's it. Hey, I had wait, no plan for I, the future. Yeah, can I tell you something? Yeah. That there's so many people that just heard you say that and say that's me. That's what I do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's that's how we do it. When and especially with these layers of, I have personal shit in my life. Um, you know, we're struggling financially, and and I you've heard me say this, but I tell people, and I'm not joking. When you're a provider, I'd rather be shot at any day of the week than Absolutely. lay in bed and w- look at the ceiling and think, how in the fuck am I going to do this? I have no idea how I'm going to pay these bills this month. Yeah. That pressure is horrible. Combat is really simple. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, rest, you, stand around, you stand around and yeah. get shot at. And it's not easy to hit somebody. I mean, yeah. truth be told, right? So I'm really actually sandbagging that. I know the probabilities of metal and human beings. And, I mean, you can have somebody unleash a whole lot at you, right? And if the God who governs the flight of metal through the air likes you that day, guess what? You're going to be talking shit with everybody else like, holy fuck, what? Did you see that? Can't believe that they didn't hit anybody. Well, they were aiming at you. You were safe, okay? Because that's how they do it in Iraq. It's everybody else that's standing around that might get hit. Um, And so you've just described the daily life for a lot of people. Yeah. What did you learn? What changed? Well, you know. And again, you're a thinker too. It's not like you're you know, a knuckle-dragon rube, okay? You're a thinker, and you're still in that spot. I mean, Wade, normally, when we do shit, he's in his semi, and he's driving. But a few weeks ago, he's in at his home, and he's sitting in front of this bookcase, and there's all these books in it. And I start asking, and so I'll, being in the shithead that I am, I start asking him about the books. What's back there? Is that green eggs and ham? Like times 50 or what? And he says, oh, no. And it's classic literature. So that's you. Yet you're still you're still in this place of devastation like so many. Yeah. What did you learn? What changed? You, you know, um, having uh, – I had a bit of intellectual I – don't, I don't mean intelligence. I just mean intellectual knowledge. Uh, before all this happened, because I grew up as a son of a pastor, right? right. So uh, pastors always dealing with death and family trauma and things like that in other families. So I had a, you know, a, a observatory knowledge or whatever you want to call it. I'd seen this stuff, so I had a little bit of knowledge of that. But uh, having knowledge and applying it to your own life is two different things. Right. Um, but with I eventually made my way into the VA after, oh gosh, I think a decade after the war, I think it's 2013, 2014, I finally do a little bit to get some help, okay? And it opens my eyes up a little bit to what I'm doing and how bunkered I become, and it becomes a slow process of trying to get out of the bunker. Um, but, you know, I when, when I lost one and I reached out to you, Uh, 
how do I, uh, you know, I, not through intention, but I robbed Juan of a lot of happy times. The same way his suicide robbed me of a future. I always tried to be a good father, to be encouraging, to be their biggest cheerleader. But sometimes I worry too much about paying the bills versus saying, hey, let's go to the river. Let's go camp out. Let's just stop chasing life and enjoy life. I, you know, it's, it's the cliche, but the cliches are so true. I was too busy trying to make a living to make a life. And I robbed one much of that. When I lost him, I knew, didn't know how, but I knew that life could not continue on that trajectory. I was not going to survive. No way. And with post-traumatic winning, I started learning disciplines of how you build this foundation. You know, you do, it doesn't it doesn't change life, but it gives you tools to deal with life. But to me, the biggest thing that I have gotten out of this because I, I just consider myself a schmuck in a truck. But when I can help somebody, when I can tell one story and it touches them, when I can go to a family that's recently been through a suicide and stand with them and let them know that, hey, you're not alone. Been down that road too. I'm here for you. Everything's not going to be magically easier. There's a way through this. You know, let me tell you about a few things that I've learned. That is the most valuable and the only thing that gives my life meaning right now is how do I use one story to help someone else. Have you been surprised? I know um, you've had a couple of experience, experiences. One, uh, somebody you introduced me to, and then somebody, a lifelong friend, um, and could you, could you, the one guy was a, a cigar buddy, um, but yeah. the, the other story is crazy about the way this works, right? So, so, you know, here I meet Wade and, uh, and I meet Rosario and, 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 and I watch what I always see in post-traumatic winning and Wade's seen it now too. Uh, Wade quite, uh, uninvited. Um, I was doing events on Monday, I think Tuesday, Wednesday at one point, and then they ended. And so Wade's in his truck, right? So he would come to all of them. So I'm doing now a private version of this the following week. And um, in the middle of it, it's me and two other people. And in the middle of it, all of a sudden this iPhone pops up. And I think, well, did one of the two people that are there, I mean, because we're the only three that know we're doing it. Did they call it a second time? Like what? And then all of a sudden I look. And so when Wade's driving, he's got his phone on and you can see little lights go by at, at night. And I'm looking, I'm like, is that Wade? And I said, Wade? And he says, yeah. And I said, you're not, I said, you're not invited to this shit. He, and he said. <laughs> it's he called said, a dynamic entry. <laughs> yeah, he said, what? 
I said, yeah, you need to go the fuck away, man. You're not invited to this. And then it dawns on me that um, the person that we're doing with is struggling with, you know, events of, you know, of their son. And I think she would benefit because Wade is so good in these discussions. And uh, and honestly, Wade's got a gift for it. And um, And then I thought, and Wade needs to do this too. And so I said, hey, do you mind if Wade hangs out with this? This is Wade. This is his story. And that person said, oh, no, absolutely not. And then Wade... You know, essentially, you know, he just participates in the discussion is what he does, right? And But what the other, the wisdom from this is what is life-changing. These discussions that stay in your head about very, very deep things that happen in the valley of the shadow of death, about, about behavior change in the midst of all this. How do you do it? What, what works? What doesn't work? And so, um... Wade has has become a part of these things uh, that I do, and I I call on him. But I want you to, if you don't mind, you know, quickly telling the story about um, a friend of yours, right? Can you? I mean, this is this improbable story, and then and uh, so would you tell that one? Yeah, um, Madison County in Tennessee is not a a heavily populated county. I don't. I don't know. With the uh, maybe eighty thousand people, ninety thousand. I don't know. But um, anyway, I I was on the road and I had saw that um, uh, flashed across Facebook or something that we had lost a deputy to uh, suicide, which is extremely rare. Um, law enforcement suicides aren't that rare, but it's rare for this part of the country. And I was talking to my buddy, one of my best friends. Uh, he's an anthropologist, uh, food critic, expert in narco cults and things like that. And it turns out that it was one of his lifelong friends. I didn't know the guy personally. But I was like, I was talking to him and he called me. He was all upset. And we talked through this, you know, about just one, just to have the conversation. Tell me about your friend. Tell me about what you're feeling. And, you know, and I tried to tell him, you know, I'm just a Neanderthal, but these are a couple of things I've learned, and you know. But then it turns out that this guy's dating a girl, a girl. She's she's older than I am, but dating a lady that um, is the sister of one of my other best friends. Been friends for thirty years. It's like one of my cigar buddies, and we've been together everywhere. I mean, we've done a lot of things together over the years, so. You know that that's a that's another connection. So I I'm having this debate of all right, I don't know this guy, this deputy personally. Should I go to the funeral? I mean, is that presumptive of me just because I I've had a child commit suicide? Did I go to somebody else's funeral? Do I really know enough to help you know comfort the family? But you know I I eventually asked my daughter. I was like, you know, she's 15. I was like, what do you think? She says, well, I think you should go. Like, okay, so I went. And it turns out that um, even though I didn't know the guy, his sister was a lady that we lived next door to for several years. When the kids were little, they knew the kids. I lost contact when we moved from there. But, 
you know, that was that was someone we were very close to in the neighborhood because they lived right there in the cove with us. Uh, we did things. I cut their yard when I was gone. They cut my grass. You know, the kids run around all the place. They watched the kids when we were gone. And, you know, we lost contact over the years. But, you know, I was able to talk with the mother and the father and the sister about shared commonality, what we've been through, about how, um, you know, take your time. There's no, there's no stopwatch. Respect your own feelings. You have a right to feel this. And, yeah, above all else, it just sucks. Be honest about that, too. What was that like for you? I mean, all you see is this story, and it winds up being a personal link, and then people that you, you know, begin to have a personal impact on. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yes? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I, I still maintain contact with, with the lady who is his, going to be his fiance. Um, you know, Scott's one of my best friends, his, her brother, but I never really knew. She's older, so I never knew her. We never run around in high school and stuff like that. But I knew of her, but now, you know, I contact her and, we, you know, I try to keep in touch with her and see how she's doing. Same thing with um, the, the guy's sister. Uh, Chris Hilliard was the deputy that committed suicide, I, you know trying to check on his sister every once in a while and it's just you know it's not that I you call me the Socrates of truck driving which I I, I absolutely throw the, the BS Socrates on, of the semi get it right as I said I, I absolutely throw the BS flag on that but you know it's just like I've just had some experiences it's not that I I'm wise or you know I've got answers it's just I've okay I've been down that road this is what I've learned and this is what I've learned from others who've been further down the road than I am. Just Can I tell you? I mean, so that's, exa that's exactly what I say. I'm not, uh, look, I don't do mental health. That's for doctors and psychiatrists and things like that. But I do do mental fitness. I do, I am one of the great guides, right? And I say that with all humility in the valley of the shadow of death. If you don't have a mental health issue, I can help you, right? And then I can right. help you help somebody else. And so I would say your words are absolutely what I do. And I'm, t I'm telling everybody that's listening, that's what about 98% of us need, right? Yeah. We, need, we yeah. need a guide. We need somebody to help us, somebody to help us learn to live, somebody to learn how to help us change our behavior. And I'm going to tell you, Wade, is a, is a, he's a miracle in himself. And a lot of times when people go through what he's gone through, these things don't happen. Other bad things, you know, those things become catalysts for more bad things. And, uh, and, and watching him go through this has been amazing. And I want to, I want to illustrate this by, um, he said something one night that I threw a fit about. And, um, and I want him to explain and say what he said. So the discussion is about can you do this? So it's people that have gone through the whole seminar. And again, the seminar is eight hours and 40 minutes of video. So we watch about an hour a week. First one's a little bit longer. And then we get together and we talk about it. And that's where this wisdom takes place, right? These discussions, the byproduct of those, because all this, is, all this shit is true. It's all stuff that's come predominantly from junior enlisted Marines. 
It is nothing but the bold-faced fucking truth, right? So, and then we get together and talk about this stuff. And so, um, and and then these discussions are really what stay in your head, stay in my head. I know they stay in Wade's head because um, we'll text about them and talk about them. And so, the very last segment is okay. Now what? Can you do this? Okay. And for me, it's a little bit of shooting fish in a barrel because I know what they're going to say and what they're going to say is, and so we're talking about it and you begin to hear the standard. Well, I probably need to watch the videos again and uh, I need to do this and I need to do that. And then I, to which I respond in this group, fuck that. And like everybody, everybody looks like, what, what did he just say? Yeah, I, fuck that, okay? Fuck, I need to watch the videos. Fuck, I need to, you know, do so, read some more of these things and watch some of those videos, right? Um, can you remember you're never going to get over it? Well, yeah. Can you remember it's to stop faking it and you got to talk about it? Well, yeah. Can you remember if you're struggling, you got to stop drinking? Yeah. Can you remember that you got to be physically active? Yeah. Okay, if you can remember that shit, that's what you need to start with. And if you can do that with somebody that's struggling, once you get to the part where you're fucking it up, call me on your cell phone, put me on speaker, and I'll help you. Okay? If you're trying, I'm helping. So I say that, right? And then Wade says the following. Throw what you, add what you added that night. Well, you know, again, this this is stuff I just regurgitate from other smarter people. But I had heard this said before years ago. Now you have to imagine I, this, right? I'm sitting here and he starts talking and I'm listening, right? Because I'm I'm going to tell you what happened, and it, it's it's a little bit funny, but it was it, it my reaction was because this is so good. So say what you said. Well, it's it's when you're telling. When you've been through this, and you, you know, like for me, okay, uh, I lost one in in a horrible way, right? So I meet someone, say that they're in similar circumstances, and they're when I talk to them, and I tell them what I've been through, you know, and it, it's not the words from my mouth that they hear; it's the music of my soul. Because their soul resonates with mine. Because that pain is so deep and so profound. Grief is the purest form of love. But it's also one of the deepest hurts that's humanly possible. And that music resonates together. So if I stumble over my delivery, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not trying to sell you a timeshare. I'm trying to tell you what I've been through and to tell you the story of my amazing son who made a stupid mistake and destroyed my world. And they will hear that vibration. They will hear that from my soul. Okay, so he says that, right? And he says it like this. He said a little bit different. He said between the look on your face between the tone of your voice and whatever words you use, they will hear the music of your soul. Now, I'm listening, right? And I yell, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Once again, every look, like, what? I said, 
Where in the fuck did your hillbilly ass get that? Because that's straight up profound. And give them your response. Because he can't remember, which is bullshit, but that's okay. So he's going to get full credit for it. But tell the backstory. Where where did that where does that even you think come from? I, I think it was at some business seminar or something. I was at twenty twenty five years ago, and and some guy was talking about personal relations because he was he this. The, the, I think the guy that was speaking was a millionaire, but he was all about you know how he got there because he helped other people get there. And he's talking about, you know, his, even though he was a millionaire, I think his daughter died at 22, just dropped dead, you know, and it's like, it, it, life happens to everybody, no matter your economic level. But when you tell these stories and you're trying to help people, it's not, you know, they're not looking at what kind of car you drove or how, how polished your words are. They hear the music of your, of your soul, how sincere you are and how real you are. Because you can't, you can't fake this crap. I mean, you come up to me and try to play a victim, I'm going to punch you in your face. If you're lucky. If it's not a throat punch, it's going to be a face punch. It needs to be a throat, throat punch, soft tissue. Yeah, don't, 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 don't come up to me and play the victim. I, I got no time for that shit. But so are you, you honest? Are you sincere? So you Let's can talk. imagine. And people, listen... And it, and I will tell you what it is. It is a beautiful way to articulate this thought, because you're trying to talk about something that you've been through with somebody else, and it's not easy. But it's so rich, and and it's the way what it can. It's kind of like I think um, the Valley of the Shadow of Death is a is a great way to articulate this place of devastation. Because when people hear that, they say, that's where that's where I've been. That's absolutely where they seize on it, right? And, and, and it's, so it's a very powerful, um, it's a very powerful phrase. It's a very powerful, powerful visual image. And the music of your soul strikes me the same way. And he throws this out there that night. And I'm just looking at him going, what the hell, man? Um, but it's one of the things that I've enjoyed about um, getting to know Wade and watching him is that he is, he is a deep thinker, however modest uh, that he is, on, and he is that way. And I've watched him help different people, and and it's cool. And I love the way that it's always linked to the way he honors and remembers his son. And I would tell you that it is the only path. There is no other path. Yes. You know, there is no other path but to take this tragedy. Right, and to turn it into something um, beautiful that that brings joy into your life, and that honors, you know, um, your son, your beautiful son, who you know. And Wade, I love the way you talk about it, and and you had an impact on somebody here recently, because Wade was talking because he said he made a stupid mistake, you know. And I know people would recoil and say, oh, you know, how could you say that? You know, your your son has passed away, and you know he's dead now, and you're saying he made a stupid mistake. A couple, a few weeks ago, we were talking, and Wade was talking about that he was pissed at Juan. He was mad at him. He was, I think you said pissed. Yeah. And and somebody either either wrote me or called me or texted me and was talking about how listening to you say that, and how under the umbrella of how much you love your son, 
you could still be pissed at him, but all that can exist together under one umbrella of this umbrella of love, and that was okay. And I often say that when you tell the truth about you, you give permission to somebody else to tell the truth about themselves. Well, it's actually what Wade did. When he talked about he was pissed, he gave this person permission to be pissed too. And they didn't think it was okay. And they said, I, I stopped feeling bad about trying to not to be pissed, that I was just okay with being pissed and understand now that that's simply a part of the emotional reaction to all of this. And so t- talk about that because that's not something easy. And there's a guy named Steve. He's a former Marine, former Marine officer. And his son struggled with drug addiction for years and, and ultimately died. And I, I think it might have been the same night that we were talking. And I asked Steve, were you relieved when he died after everything you went through? And did you feel guilty about feeling relieved? And he yelled, yes and yes. And so, I yep. mean, how, I mean, talk about going deep into the strip mine, you know, and I think we might have talk about guilt that night, but, we, you know, did, were you relieved when it ultimately happens? Because with, you know, people that go through addiction issues, you're talking about years, sometimes decades of this roller coaster that is, is this horrific roller coaster to get on. You know, in and out of jail, you know, uh, families file restraining orders. I mean, shit like that. And drug and alcohol addiction the whole way through, stealing. I mean, all this kind of crazy stuff. Now, I don't, most of that wasn't part of Steve's story. But when I said that, he seized on it. But we don't have these discussions very often. Talk about your, um, your coming to grips with your anger, that it was okay to be angry, and that you being angry could still exist within the love you have for your your son. Yeah. Well, you know, that's... <clears throat> it's, it's a journey, right? Um, I learned things from not handling the first traumatic event, which was nowhere near the magnitude of losing one, right? It just came dramatic because, I, you know, if I'd taken the time in 2003 to go back and process everything that happened that day, that young, uh, what was he, 20 years old, uh, uh, petty officer, third class from Oklahoma that blew himself up, you know, just process that. This happened. This is what I saw. This is what I did. This is his family, you know, but I never, never even opened myself up to those emotions. I just put them all in a box. But I knew when I lost Juan that uh, I got to I got to think this through. I got to deal with this each motion as it comes. And, and again, not that I'm I'm just a schmuck in a truck, but I knew that I had a right to my emotions. And when I say I was angry at Juan, and and that's a reoccurring emotion. It's not like I've dealt with that and that just goes away. Right. Uh, it comes up sometimes when I see friends posting pictures of the first grandchild. Uh, I see friends with their <clears throat> adult sons having a cigar or going fishing or doing whatever. That that anger can pop up again. Because, you know, the, the analogy I use is if, if Juan had been gunned down on the street, if there was a killer out there that had done this to Juan, Oh, I would be pissed at that. 
I would be angry at that. I would want that person found and punished to the max. You know, come from a big family. There's seven of us kids. I'm the middle. My grandmother on the Kate side had, oh gosh, she had six kids. Uh, grandkids were like 36, 38, 40. I forget what the number is. Great grandkids, great, great grandkids. One is the only male Kates out of that entire line. The Kates line ends now. Juan was the only biological male out of that. He stole that from me. He robbed me of grandchildren of fishing trips, of wrestling matches because I wanted to get on the mat with him and let him teach me how to fight better because he was pretty darn good at jujitsu. He robbed me of all of that, the same as if someone on the street had robbed me. And I have a right to be upset about that. And I do forgive him. And I have come to terms with his pain and what he was going... The boy shot himself in the face with a 20-gauge shotgun. He didn't put it under his chin. He didn't stick it in his mouth. It was a short-barreled shotgun. that He looked down the barrel and pulled the trigger. How much pain was he in? And how did I miss it? But he robbed me, and I have a right to be upset about what I lost. Absolutely, I forgive him 100%. But there are times... And there are moments where that anger flares up. And that's a valid emotion. Don't deny that emotion. You can file it away in the appropriate category, but do not try to suppress it. For me, suppression, that emotion of being upset with what he did, turns into anxiety and outburst of anger to others. It will destroy you. So allow yourself to feel the range of emotions can exist in the same time in the same place. You know, I I, I look forward to my next conversation with, with, with our friend Peter because right now, you know, I'm doing all the right things, but I'm still, right at this moment, the last three weeks, I have trouble looking at pictures of one. My eyes literally slide off the photo because I don't want to see what no longer exists. You know, what we do in post-traumatic winning does not remove the pain. It does not, it's, it's not hopium, right? It's just things that you do to rebuild your world. This is how I get through the day. This is how I find joy. And you will not find joy until you share. And so just you, and just for, for everybody, Peter um, is, uh, is Peter Ostrowski. His son, Jack Ryan, was one of the Marines in that Amtrak uh, that um, that sank off the coast of Southern California. It'll be three years ago, I think, um, in, it seems hard to believe, but in, in at the end of July, the start of August, that that event happened. And Peter finds post-traumatic winning while listening to podcasts about uh, the incident, the investigation, and things that I was talking about. 
um, on that. And I think a series of shows that I did with uh, uh, Will and Tim and Jeff about uh, about the investigation. And uh, so Peter finds post-traumatic winning and sends me, introduces himself, sends me an email. And, um, and, uh, and Peter has transformed his life in two and a half years and from losing his son in a way that nobody, I mean, the negligence that surrounds the death of his son is just heart crushing. And to think if one person, maybe in a group of 20, does halfway does the right thing, his kid's alive, and what he's been deprived of. But he recently talked about how he's accepted what happened. He said, I know this is going to sound stupid. He said, but I've accepted what happened finally. And there's nothing I can do to bring, you know, Jack back. And I found peace in that. And it's taken me a while to do that. And I know that I can live a great life. I know that um, I'm responsible to myself to do that. I know that I'm responsible to my wife to do that for her. And our other son, Sam, I'm responsible for him too. And But to hear those kind of words from somebody whose loss is so recent is stunning. But I would tell you that Peter would, would attribute that to these deep discussions that you have to have as you try to develop this expert knowledge of the valley of the shadow of death. And, and and this place, this this graduate support group that I have, I mean, the conversations there, you don't have any place else, right? You don't have any place yeah. else. And and Peter yeah. said something, and 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 uh, um, Wade quoted him a little bit ago when he said, "Grief is the deepest form of 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 love," and we got to talking about that, and then. As I as and it took about a week, and then I brought it up again, and I said, "How about if we give love a different name when we lose somebody? But how about it's you know it's just the spectrum of love, right? On one end, I meet a beautiful Panamanian girl on a dance floor, and I can't speak a lick of Spanish, and she doesn't speak English, <laughs> right? And that whole falling in love and getting married, and that excitement, euphoric love, having children." Right, all those right, all those beautiful moments, and then in the middle of it is my dumbass kid, right? Can't even bring his bike in out of the rain, right? He's flunking out of college. Like, what the fuck is going on, right? And I don't, you know, my body doesn't look the way it used to look. So that's like love in the middle. Like, I still love these people, and I still love myself, but everyday love, right? And then there's grief. And grief is the, the reconciliation of this person, this part of my life is no longer there. And I'm trying to reconcile myself to it, but it's devastating. And when the D word is the, the bank next to the river at the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death, that place of devastation, and there's all kinds of things that send us there, Everybody's story is a little bit different, but we all wind up in the same place. And so, I mean, so Peter articulating that was brought on this incredibly, you know, um, deep discussion about, you know, people d- describe, I had somebody ask me, why am I so pathetic? 
How about the reason you're so pathetic is because you loved him or her so much. And right, another woman whose name is June, she said, but I'm in the store and I burst out. I just don't seem to be. How about you burst out in that store because you lost him? And, you know, I mean, to suicide. And this is someplace you went together and all of a sudden you come around the corner and a video plays in your mind. How about instead of not being able to get over it and grief, how about it's just your love that shows up and you have an emotional reaction to that? Is that okay? And so when you when you hear it like that, I think the answer quite naturally is, well, yeah, that's okay. But I've never really thought about it in those terms. And that's what these discussions do. And when so when Wade talks about, I need to talk to Peter, um, it's people like this who begin to develop this kind of uh, wisdom in the valley of the shadow of death. And that, that wisdom begets a strength, you know, trying to become Hercules or some version of Hercules in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's what I see all the time. Those are the miracles I get to see. Peter's one of them. Wade is another one um, who have gone through very difficult things and then come out. Um, and again, it's not like they come out and it looks like Marty McFly's car in Back to the Future, right? The DeLorean with the flux capacitor. It's not like that come out with all kinds of dents and beat up, right? But a life that still has joy in it, it still has beauty in it in spite of all the the shit that goes with it. So that's what he's referring to in talking to Peter. Um, give me a comment about all of that, Wade. You know, um, we're talking about, uh, almost go back to the beginning of what, what has made the difference for me or what's, what's been the biggest thing. And I, my feeling is is that um, you know you, you've got to do put all those principles in place, but the giving is the most important. The giving and the sharing. You got to talk about what's going on in your world. You you don't just go out there and bleed on people, but you got to have trusted people. And when you see someone who's entering the circumstance that you maybe have been in for a while, you need to reach out, and you will feel that in your spirit. But you know you know I'm a I'm a I'm a Neanderthal geek, right? And I love the quote from Star Trek V when Sabok says, Each man hides a secret pain. It must be exposed and reckoned with. It must be dragged from the darkest and forced into the light. Share your pain. Share your pain with me and gain strength from the sharing. To me that rings so true because of what I've experienced. You know, Christ said bear one another burdens, right? It means when I can tell you, I can tell you it's horribly painful to sit here today and tell you one story, but I can also tell you that what I get from sharing one story far outweighs the pain because some, it will resonate with someone and it will help someone. I've seen it and I know that to be true. First of all, um, I want to thank you for coming on and doing this. Um, I, you know, when you and I talked about it a week ago, um, I was I, I was very proud that in probably the span of 24 hours you thought about it and said, yeah, I want to do that. And that's what I hoped. And um, f- 
for people that want to get a hold of you, Wade, how do they get a hold of you? I, you're on Facebook, right? Yeah, that's my name. Uh, on Facebook, uh, if you want to go into that hedonistic culture, I'm on Facebook as <laughs> Wade Cates. Um, and you spell Cates. Instagram you is Cates, N-W. You spell yeah, Cates, C-A-T-E-S, on, on Facebook. Yeah. And if, if, if none of that works for you or you're not on that, if you shoot me a, an email, I will uh, I will forward it to Wade and, and get you. Yeah, and um, you can, well, my, my email address is katesnw at gmail.com. Kate's N-W? Yeah. What's N-W stand for? Nathaniel Wade. So Wade is your middle name? Yes, sir. Why aren't we talking... Why am I not talking to Nathaniel? What's wrong with you would that? You'd have to what? interview my mom. You'd have to interview my mom for that. I don't know. I've just always been called by my middle name my entire life. Got it. So your mom gave you Nathaniel and called you Wade. Correct. Got it. All right. Is she still alive? Can I take that up with her? Or? Oh yeah. Oh she. Oh is? yeah. I said it. I right. can set up the interview. All right. All right. That might need to happen. Well, again, I wait. I I talk about watching miracles, and and I feel sometimes like a, you know, I'm I'm proud because of something that I've accumulated and put together. This thing called post traumatic winning, which is a process of so many people, so many conversations, and it's essentially like, okay, I'm just going to show you what works in in a world where not too much does. Uh, even given that, I, you can b- give that blueprint to a lot of people, and, and some of them won't be able to do it. Most will, but um, you've been you've been fantastic. Um, and watching you, I know it's been um, it's been really hard. Um, and uh, I just want to want you to know how proud I am of uh, you and 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 the work you've done. I know it's not. Uh, I know it's not done by any stretch but i just want to tell you how impressed i have been with with you and all of that and uh and thank you for doing this and i want to ask you i mean i'm sure people that have listened to this want to know how uh how you're doing how rosario's doing how esperanza's doing so how's everybody doing as as expected would be you know good and bad how would how do you describe that i i well, to me, um, considering what we've been to, I say extraordinarily well. Uh, we are together. We are united. We just, like I said, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Happy happy um, anniversary. And you know, and that, I don't I don't mean that it's been all sunshine and roses. There's been some definitely some high volume, low content discussions in this house, but you know that's part of it. But uh, we stick together, um, Rosario. Rosario was. Um, she started a new job this week. She's going to work for the hospital, which is something she hasn't uh, done in a long time. So she's branching out and um, getting uh, back into the workforce. Um, Esperanza's returned to training, so she's training in judo and jiu-jitsu, and we're looking for a, a competition to go to sometime in the summer. Um, that's part of her therapy, but the training is part of her therapy, and she's doing well at school. She goes to a uh, a Catholic school here in town, um, but uh, her grades are good. She's returned to the mat, and she's always maintained open communication, which to me was the most important thing, uh, because like I said, you know, her trauma is just as big as mine, if not bigger, considering she was the one that 
found him. Uh, so that's an extra uh, dimension for her. But um, we're united as a family. We're not perfect. No one is. That's a stupid thing to say. But you know, I don't want to. I don't want to paint the story if it's all sunshine and roses. Um, we're together. We're committed, and we love each other. What else could you ask for? All right. What have I not been smart enough to ask you that you want people to know before we conclude this discussion? Well, the answer you told me to give was nothing because you're too smart. <laughs> that is a trick question. You're right. That's the question. Uh, I, honestly, I I don't know. Uh, we, we've talked quite a bit, and I don't know what else there is to say. All right. Wade, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. All the best to you and your beautiful family, and uh, God bless. Uh, my privilege, and Mac, continue what you're doing. Um, I'm, this is, What you do is the closest thing that humanity has ever seen to a perpetual motion engine because it is a reaction that you give when you, you help someone else, and they can in turn help someone else and help someone else. That is for perpetual motion. And continually the, moving forward for the good, for the yes. good. And, and I tell people, um, you know, we can, we can, we can affect this, but there's so much of this that we don't really know until we go through something terrible. I didn't, yeah. you know, I was, I was, I, I just call it being ignorant. And in the literal sense, I did not know. And, yeah. uh, and I think there's a prevention piece of this, and, and I hear about it from Marines that are pissed when they have to come to my class, and then something bad happens, and they say they know what to do. So my my vision is that, you know, I mean, there would be a version of this in health class in high school, or you could hear, yeah. hear it early in life, and, and to know that, hey, this is just the way life is. There's nothing wrong with you, and you've got to do these things to be mentally fit and physically fit. And we want you to do those things. So that, that's my vision. But again, and what you're talking about is 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 the joy part of it is when you help somebody else and you do that on a regular basis, that is the joy that you need injected into your life after traumatic events so that you can continue Absolutely. to live a great life and um, a great example in the Wade Cates family. So, Wade, thank you. My privilege. That'll do it. My thanks to uh, my friend Wade Cates for coming on and talking about stuff that's not real easy to talk about. Uh, you know, when I go out and do post-traumatic winning, people will say to me, uh, hey, Mac, I just want to thank you for showing up and uh, and sharing your story with us and and being vulnerable in front of us. And I always wince and it's like, am I that guy? And I've thought about that a lot. And I don't think it's, I don't think people who do that are vulnerable. I think if you're vulnerable, you spend your time protecting yourself, right? So I would tell you that it takes a small amount of courage to share the personal details of your life 
with people that you may or may not know very well. I'll tell you what, it takes courage to do it with people you know, because you're just not sure what they're going to think. And that's some scary shit. To do it with people you don't know very well, that's even scarier. So I would tell you it's a small act of courage. And when you see people stand up doing that, that's not vulnerability, right? I think most of us know what courage is. It's not that you're not scared. It's that you put your fear aside and you go do what you need to do. And so that's what you saw in motion right there. And I I am so blessed to, I see a ton of it in my life with people that have gone through really, really, really difficult things that try to change their lives. And, and what life change is about, it's about behavior change. Fucking hard, man. Easy to talk about. Easy to post bullshit on Facebook. It's really fucking hard to do, though. And I see people that I will tell you that are straight up miracles. Straight up miracles. There is no fucking way they should be where they're at, but they're there. And the reason they're there is because they have an inner strength. They find a path. They know they can live a better life. And then they go out and they do it. You know, and, and, and Wade is an example of that. You know, that stuff like that he says about the music of your soul. I mean, you heard me tell the story about, <laughs> about what I yelled that night. Shut the fuck up, man. I know you didn't make that shit up. And he starts laughing. Uh, but you see that that c- kind of courage in motion. And honestly, it takes your breath away. Just like physical courage takes your breath away. And, and operational conflicts and things like that. Whether you're risking your lives for your fellow Marines, for civilians, or in the face of the enemy. You know, it takes my breath just as much away to see people who've come from really difficult circumstances and watch their courage as they change their, their life. So I wanted you to meet Wade. I wanted you to hear Wade. And what I want you to seize on, one of the things, and you'll seize on a bunch of things if you listen to this whole interview, but one of the things I want you to seize on is what changed, what what created this chain reaction? It was another Marine who gave a shit, who got in his car and drove almost five hours to see a friend. And it was this Marine who sticks his hand into the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death that weighs in. And he says, hey man, you need to call this guy. And that opens up a door to a life-changing event. Certainly not an easy one. Right? That's a tough path out of the valley of the shadow of death. But Wade's doing it. If Wade can do it, you can fucking do it. If you have friends that are in there, you can help them. And that's what I want you to know. And that's not a, a guess or a hypothesis. I see it all the fucking time. We're the solution to all this. So on that note, have a great week. I'll see you next week. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. And I'm out.